my kids are recording a podcast, my youngest two kids, and they're doing it wrong. And I've told them they're doing it wrong and they won't listen and they don't want to hear from me. And their podcast will probably be a massive hit. So, so there, but it, it has to do with how they're recording it, et cetera. I, I won't get into it, but there are a lot of people who think I do this wrong and you may be one of them. I, I recorded this interview that you're hearing today outside. So you're going to hear choppers fly over and the bell at Kirkland Hall chime gong and, you know, people talking in the background. And that's what happens when you record things outside a studio. We were sitting outside at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, behind Kirkland Hall and sitting on the patio on a glorious, glorious, resplendent, halcyon fall day. See, when you go to Vanderbilt, you use words like resplendent and halcyon. That's that's what your Vanderbilt education gets you, pretension, pretentious, pretentiousness. It gets you nickel college words, as they used to call them. This is really fun, this one. This woman was a fellow inductee in the Vanderbilt University Student Media Hall of Fame. She has done a lot with her life. I'm tempted to compare and say I don't hold a candle. Um, as we approach elections, she, not to be too dramatic, risked her life to get people to vote. And I don't I don't I don't think she realized she was risking her life, but she went to Mississippi um, in the 1960s after three people paid for their lives. Uh, Schwerner, Goodman and Cheney were killed and she went down to Mississippi to register voters. And you need to hear the whole story. And that's why I put as much of it as I can in this. Um, and Vanderbilt is a place she and I have conflicting feelings about. Because on the one hand, you know, we return now, but she was one of only 15 black students there. And she was, you know, well over a decade before me. But it was not easy for black students. And so we have a very honest conversation about what we love and what was not so lovely about our alma mater. Um, so I, I think you'll enjoy this. I really do. Eileen Carpenter. You have to know that you have to let the rage go, you know. Why? Because it, it will destroy you. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hello there, and welcome to In Her Words, the podcast. I'm Stuart Watson. This is really one that I, I stuck in town in Nashville an extra day just to talk to this woman, set aside an hour. We talked for three hours. We've cut this down to one hour, a little over an hour and change. And there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of American history here. Eileen Carpenter became a lawyer in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, she's in her 70s now and only now starting about talking about retirement, uh, sharp as tack. And 
her life story is just like a microcosm of a critical part of American history as it pertained to civil rights. And in her acceptance speech for the Vanderbilt University Student Media Hall of Fame, she mentioned democratic values. And she was worried that it was too heavy. And I was like, there's not enough of that kind of weight and gravitas in these kinds of events. Um, so without further ado, Eileen Carpenter. Where were you born? I was actually born in Washington, D.C. in 1947. I think my dad was, uh, he was either in the service or he was uh, up in uh, New York uh, at Columbia because he got his master's there. And um, my, my mother had relatives in Washington and they thought it would be nice for her to have the baby there. Everybody else in my family was born in Nashville. What did your father get his master's in? What did he do? Um, accounting. And he uh, uh, taught at Tennessee State for, oh, I'm not sure how many years, maybe 30. And your mother? Um, my mom worked at Tennessee State also. Uh, she was secretary to the head of the biology department. Did she have a college degree? Yeah. Both my parents went to t graduated from Tennessee State. So were they native Tennesseans? Um, my mother was born in um, Ala Alabama, no Georgia, I'm sorry, Georgia, and my dad was born in Tennessee. Um, have you done the genealogy? Have you done the spit in the tube? or the? I haven't personally, but one of my cousins really got into it. On the French side to some French king, I think. Which side would have been French, mother's or father's? Uh, my mom's. Her father, um, uh, his, his parents, um, I can't remember his name, but it'll come to me, it was, it was a French name. And he, he had my grandfather by, I think, one of the slaves on the, on the plantation. You are the great-grandchild of enslaved people. Yeah. How did you identify? Uh, well, they, they usually had uh, either white, black, Native American, Asian, so I would uh, identify as black. Do you mind answering? No, not really. <laughs> yeah. It's so subjective because, especially in this country, so many African Americans are mixed with quite a few things. So it's, you know, I guess you could say multiracial. But I just usually put black because historically, uh, I think the thing was if you had one drop, you were black, you know. So, and I'm, I'm very happy to be black, so it doesn't matter to me. I mean, I am what I am, whatever the, <laughs> whatever the label is. Um. There's this word, proud. I'm proud to be. Did you embrace that? You say, I'm happy to be black. Some people would say, I'm proud. You know, um, you know back in the 60s, th there was a slogan, I'm black and I'm proud. And that- James uh, Brown. Yeah, that in large part was, because there was a time, I think, that maybe we weren't proud, you know, because uh, we were looked down upon and, and uh, um, 
and there was a there was a push to to uh, I think help African Americans to be proud of their heritage. So in the '60s, that was that was really big. The the, the I'm black and I'm proud. Do you do much reading or much research about enslaved people, particularly your own family? I've done a lot of reading on, on slavery and the aftermath of slavery, especially as it affects our economics. I uh, haven't done a lot of uh, ancestry tracing because I have a cousin who probably is an expert in it now and you know, I'm going get, to get all of her stuff and read it but um, I haven't been involved in doing the work myself. The most recent book I, I read, which I thought was really enlightening for me, was called Not In My Neighborhood. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it goes through a lot of the uh, economics of why there's such a huge disparity between the wealth of blacks and the wealth of whites. And it's focused on Baltimore, which is where I live. Growing up in Nashville, I didn't know much about Baltimore. And I remember when I uh, moved there, well, actually, Westinghouse brought me there. After I graduated, I got a job with, uh, with Westinghouse, first at their aerospace division. And then uh, I was only there for a short period. And then uh, I was transferred to the uh, Ocean Engineering and Research Center. Were you uh, a lawyer then? No, I was a, a physics major. And so. Oh my God. Oh my God. I yeah. can't relate. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's how I, I got that job. And of course, that opened my eyes. At the time, there was a popular phrase called the military industrial complex. Absolutely. And uh, I kind of saw. Eisenhower. That. Oh, okay. <laughs> a Republican, let the record reflect, came up with that phrase. Oh, okay. Um, and I kind of saw it first, firsthand, and this will get me to how I became a lawyer. Um, every, every two, I mean, because uh, it was good money, you know, for right out of school, you know, it was interesting. Uh, but every two years, it seemed like they had a layoff. And I remember when the first layoff came around, about, about my second year there, you know, I saw the older engineers really just shaking in their boots. You know, they were scared to death. They were going to get laid off, and a lot of them did. And I didn't understand it at first because I, I was preparing myself to get laid off. I was, you know, hadn't been there <laughs> that long. I mean, that's who you're going to lay off. I didn't, didn't understand the economics of it at the time. Uh, and I think I asked somebody about, you know, why are they, why are they laying off the older, more experienced engineers and they said because they they cost more you know you're you're cheaper and you know that was uh i guess i realized then that industry didn't have a heart you know or but anyway that was that was kind of shocking to me and then when the next layoff uh came around maybe a couple of years later um i you know something said you're not going to be able to retire from here so I started looking around for, okay, I've spent, um, you know, a number of years of my life in this, in this area uh, and profession, so, you know, what am I going to do? The guy I was dating at the time said, why don't you go to law school? And I was like, law school? That's so boring, you know. Then after I thought about it, I realized that uh, I, could, I could probably work with it. It might be just what, you know, what I was looking for. 
but I decided I would. And you could work into your 70s if you so chose. You yeah. You could work into your 50s and 60s. Right. And, and didn't have to worry about it. And, and you could be the master of your fate. Exactly. And that was important to me. Um, so I decided that I would, you know, apply. And um, if I got accepted, you know, I would try it out for a year. Uh, but if I didn't like it, I would get out because I didn't want to wait. I didn't want to lose any more time, you know. So I, I was fortunate. I got accepted at the University of Maryland, um, also at a uh, couple, couple of, uh, uh, I think Georgetown and GW. Uh, but I chose Maryland because you know it was it was close to where I was living, and also I could I could uh, work. I got a, a job clerking with with one of the judges, and I could. I could pay my way through law school because I was so tired of, you know, ha you know, having paid off the student loans from undergraduate. What branch of the service was your father in? Uh, he was in the Army. And do you know where he was stationed? I know he was in Germany at one point. Was he a combat veteran? Um, you know, my dad and his brother and their first cousin I never heard them talk about the war, and um, I was always very proud of my dad for having, you know, served in World War II. And one day, this was maybe about, maybe about five years ago or so, I was talking to one of my white friends, and I said, "Yeah, my dad served." Somehow it came up. My dad served in uh, World War II, and she said to me. I bet he never talked about it, did he? And I looked at her and I said, no, he didn't. And she said, you know why? I said, no. And she said, because the black soldiers had to bury the bodies. And that was the first time I'd ever heard that. And, you know, I wish I had known that before my dad died so I could have, you know, talked to him about it. But I never once heard him talk about the, the war. Although I had a, an, an uncle um, my mother's uncle, and I think, I don't know if he was in World War I or two, but it was like he was shell-shocked. He talked about it all the time, you know. Mm. But, um, yeah, I was shocked to learn that about the black soldiers. Would he go to soldiers. Veterans Day, so, so Memorial Day or July 4th, did he ever, like, have a license plate on his car or? Never. Nothing. I never, I never heard him talk about the war. I never heard my uncle, his brother, talk about the war. So when Vietnam came around, um, and you would have had siblings and cousins who would have been draft age, um, what did he say, if anything, about Vietnam? I, I don't, you know, I don't remember him saying anything about the Vietnam War. Um, At dinner in the evening, um, did you? Did the family ever watch Walter Cronkite or Huntley Brinkley? And did and at the dinner table was there discussion of? Um, no, there. I don't remember family discussions about the war, but um, you know, at that at that time, that was in the early '60s, right? Yeah, at that time. Um, well, my generation, huh? too. Yeah, yeah, like at that time, my generation. You know, I was protesting the war. You know, 
Um, in the streets. I I didn't get involved in the in the streets, you know. But on campus, you know, we had we had we had demonstrations and. Uh, but um, how about in high school? Because your classmates would have been potentially serving. Um, well, I went to an all-girls Catholic high school, cathedral. So, um, but I did have uh, several guys from my grade school, St. Vincent. Um, one, uh, one died in the war. And I remember going to the memorial over in D.C. And, you know, f you know, my sister and I went and we found his name. But I don't remember any discussions with, with my parents about it. You know, they, they never said a lot one way or the other about the war. Now, Vanderbilt is not Berkeley. Vanderbilt is not Kent <laughs> State. Vanderbilt is such a staid, very conservative at every level, administration, faculty, students. So what did war protests look like on campus? If I remember correctly, it seemed to have been back then mainly like the hippies, you know, who were protesting. that make you a hippie? <laughs> That's a, huh? That doesn't make you a hippie. No, no, I kinda, I kinda stayed clear I respected the hippies I understood you know where the, where they were coming from uh, but I kind of stayed uh, steered clear of them because um, you know being black had its own issues and you know I didn't want to get you know get those um, you know mixed up or, or confused uh, we you know we were um, uh, you know we were more interested in in talking about uh, you know, segregation and, um, you know, civil rights, um, as opposed to, you know, I really want a right to go fight the, you know, the Vietnamese. Or so in high school, how many black kids in your graduating class? How many black In high girls? school, uh, well, like percent, ballpark. Well, you know, they were small were classes. Were you the only one? <laughs> no, there were one, two, three, four, maybe five or six of us. Out of? Uh, maybe about 40. Okay, so yeah. about an eighth. Yeah. So it's not only one. And at Vanderbilt, there's probably 2,000 undergrads. Uh, when I, my freshman year at Vanderbilt, there were uh, 15 black students. There were eight in my class, my freshman class. There were five in the um, class ahead of me, which was the first class, and then two black students from Tennessee State transferred over their junior year. So you would have known by name every black student on campus. Yeah. Did you guys sit together in the dining hall? Um, no, I lived on campus my first semester, and then I, I, I didn't like it because it, you know, it was isolating. Did you have a single? Um, or a room? Well, I lived at home my first semester. Then I moved on campus. And, and then I had a single room uh, in, um, I forget the, where the, it, it was the old nursing school. Right. Yeah. And, oh, Mary Henderson Hall. And how the white girls received you? Um, you know, Vanderbilt, most Vanderbilt Tell students. Tell the truth. Yeah, I'm getting I ready mean, to. Okay. I'm, getting, I'm getting ready to, yeah. Uh, most Vanderbilt students, you know, were Southern, and 
there, you know, Southerners kind of have a somewhat artificial air of, you know, politeness. So, and especially the Southern Bells, you know, they weren't gonna bring themselves down by calling you the N-word, you know. But what they did was they just ignored you, you know. You just, <laughs> you just weren't there. So there wasn't, now the, the guys had a different experience. There was a little more uh, name calling and a lot of bad stuff. But the women, uh, most of the white women were the traditional Southern Bells and it would be kind of beneath them to, you know, uh, make, uh, you know, really racial remarks. But they, they just, they didn't have much to do with you. They just, you know, um, if you caught their eye, you know, they might, they might give you a polite smile or, or you know, quick, you know, to maybe to acknowledge that they did see you. Uh, but um, they were all politely, you're fiddling with that, Mike Cable. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I just want to ask you something about that. Um, how do you feel when you talk about that time? Because I'm not trying to make you feel some type of way. I'm just, I'm just trying to understand. Um, it it was it was a, a painful experience. I uh, I was really naive when I came to Vanderbilt. Um, like I said, my father did not want me to go to Vanderbilt. Uh, because? But, uh, I guess maybe because of his experience at Columbia or maybe because he knew more than I did about what I would, would run into. He did say to me, you get your, you make your friends, that's what it was. You make your friends and, and, and you know, in the under, on the undergraduate level, you know, you have your fun and meet your friends, and then, then you go to grad school, you know, for, uh, you know, f for the advanced education. But he he was saying that you know you should get a solid foundation of friendships. You know, this is your opportunity to really make good friends, new friends from all you know from all over at the undergraduate level, and. I don't think he ever came out and said you won't be able to do that at Vanderbilt. You know, he didn't go that far. Um, I, Eileen, I have fewer than 10 friends from Vanderbilt that are close. And I mean, like, talk once a year, that kind of thing, that I'm still in touch with. Mm -hmm. How many friends do you have from Vanderbilt to this day? Okay. Um, the black students we're still very close, and ah. yeah, and and talk. We we really bonded. Um, I was I think I was getting ready to get into that. Sorry, um, I'm I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> no, 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 that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, um, my first year, uh, I I lived uh, at home the first semester. Then I moved on campus to Mary Henderson Hall, and that was a lot better because I you know I wasn't so isolated there. There, uh, I think there were a couple, two other uh, black female students on my hall. And of course, we, you know, we connected. And there was, um, oh, the, there was a, a, a white friend who was next door to me, and she and I would go to, you know, breakfast and lunch sometimes, and and you know, we would talk. Um, she later transferred, and we didn't, you know, maintain that. Where was friendship. she from? She was from Kentucky. 
And she, what made her different? She was what I came to call, um, oh, what was the term I gave them? Um, uh, there was a term that I gave them, meaning that th these are people who, who don't really see race. You know, there's some people out there like that. They just kind of accept you as, as a person. Um, can't remember the term I used for him, but she was unicorns. She was, <laughs> <laughs> no, but she was she was one of those people. She she just you know I don't know if you've met people who just see you, they speak, they hi, they like you, and it doesn't matter you know what your race or nationality is. You know they just um, you know they just strike up a conversation. And it's like you're talking to a sister or brother or something, you know. She was she was one of those people, um, but by and large, um, the white girls on my hall, you know, were polite but distant. You know, you know Vanderbilt was very uh, very polite. You know, it was that southern uh, southern politeness. Um, I, I, my wife joke, from oh. New York calls it fake. <laughs> Somebody t told me that the, the difference between the racism in the South and the racism in the North is in, in the North, they don't care how, they don't care how big you get, um, but don't get too close. In the South, they don't care how close you get, but don't get too big. <laughs> so that was, good. that was kind of, uh, that's, kind of what it was, you know. Is it easier or more difficult to like spot someone who is basing decisions on race in the north or in the south? Is it still pretty easy to spot? I think it's pretty apparent in both. Uh, it's, it's just different. Um, you know, and it com for me coming up in the South, uh, I remember they closed down the swimming pools so they didn't have to integrate. I mean, it was really just open in your face. I mean, you you knew you knew where you stood. Um, in the North, um, it it was more uh, sort of covert. You know, it wasn't. You know, because uh, they didn't have. Uh, you know, I grew up where there were. You know, no, no blacks, no, no colored um, admitted, or, you know, white only, or colored here and white there. And how old were you when you just, like, started to sort of become aware of that? And what did your, your mom and dad say about that? Um... I, I didn't realize uh, the extent of segregation uh, when, I was, when I was growing up in Nashville, well, when I was younger. And a couple of things stood out. I, I remember um, two things. I remember when we would be downtown with my mother shopping and we had to go to the bathroom. We'd be in this beautiful department store and the bathroom was down in the basement you know, maybe one or two stalls. It was always nasty. And I couldn't for the life of me understand why such a beautiful department store would just have such a lousy bathroom. 
Well, that was one thing. Another time we were downtown shopping with my mom and she was looking at some flowers or something and I was tired. So I sat on the, uh, one of the lunch counter stools. And my mother turned around and she looked at me and she, she had this almost look of horror on her face. And she's like, get down, get down. And I thought she thought I wanted to get something to eat or something, you know. And I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not trying to get something to eat. I'm just tired. And she's like, get down, get down. So I didn't really understand what that was all Did about. Did she speak to you about it? No, she never said anything. Um, and it wasn't until, the, it wasn't until uh, well, two things happened. My sister and I, uh, maybe a few years later, were downtown by ourselves when we could go down by ourselves. We asked the, one of the clerks at the counter where the bathroom was, and she pointed that way on that same floor. So, so my sister and I walked around and we first we walked into this huge lobby, you know, that was was beautiful. You know, people all sitting around. I noticed they looked they looked at us a little strangely. Then we kept going and then the, the bathroom stalls were in another another area. And we walked in and there was a black cleaning woman who was, you know, mopping the floor and she saw us and she said, You all are not supposed to be in here. And that, that just, con just connected things up, you know. And I was like, oh my God, you know. And then How I said, uh, Teenager? Yeah, maybe 14, 13, so, so, somewhere when we could ride the bus ourselves and, and go downtown. And so the cleaning woman, you know, said, oh, you're not supposed to be in here. Well, you know, all of a sudden things just started connecting. And this is going to be terrible, but I remember thinking, I will pee on this floor before I leave, you know. But then she said, I'm going to let you go this time, you know. But that's when things started coming, you know, together for me. Um, and, and emotionally, like in your body, how did you feel about her saying that? I was, I was angry. Because she was black, you know, but she did let us go to the bathroom. She didn't, you know, she didn't send us away. And, you know, I was too young to really understand, you know, what her position was, you know, in terms of she probably could have lost her job, you know. Um, but it's, but I was beginning to understand a lot of things that never really, you know, made sense. You know, I, my parents sheltered us from a lot of the you know, ugliness of, of segregation. And we, we had our own, we had a um, theater that we could go to. You know, we had our little separate, separate world, you know. Now there was a Woolworths lunch counter protest here, right? Fist yeah, we had a lot of sit-ins. Yeah, the sit -ins. students. Was, was that when you, was that early 60s or was that? That uh, was uh, mid. Mid 60s, yeah. So you were, and at Vanderbilt. Um, yeah, I started Vanderbilt in 65. I think it was a, maybe a little bit, it was through the mid-60s. Mid so um, I'm a little all over the place, but I want to ask this why I'm here. The Fisk students, the Meharry students, but especially the Fisk and the Vanderbilt students, the black students from Vanderbilt, did you all work with the Fisk students or with those? No, it was mainly the students from Tennessee State and Fisk. I don't 
I'm not sure that they were any Meharry students because they were medical students. But Vanderbilt students? Did black students from Vanderbilt no. join up? You did not? No. We didn't, uh, we didn't, jo we didn't join the sit-ins. Um, I think by the time, you know, they were getting kind of violent. You know, and they were they were pulling kids off the lunch counters and, Who's and the beating they them. That was getting violent? The 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 white uh, crowds that had gathered around the the you know a lot of young people there. Um, yeah, they were they were pouring ketchup in your hair. They would you know pull you off the lunch counter. Some of the kids got beaten, so it it got to be kind of violent. You know, so um, I don't think I'm not sure. Was Maybe. that a calculus you made, or did your mother or father say, why don't you? Um, I think it was just, just a calculus that, 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 that we made, you know. Um, and Vanderbilt, you know, the, 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 the studies were pretty difficult. And, you know, we just... You know, it was all we could do to keep ourselves together on the campus and, you know, do our, do our studying, you know. So it was, uh, but, um, maybe I'll get to that later. Um, I did, I did uh, go with SNCC at one point down to Mississippi. My parents were pulling their hair out, um, I think my junior year, to do, to do voter registration. Um, Where in Mississippi? Where did we go? Um, was it Jackson? Was it in the big city, or was it? It was out in the rural parts of maybe uh, Jackson. Was um, this before, or after Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney were killed? Um, you know, I can't remember if it was before or after. It was in '67, so this 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 was after. The SNCC, you know, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So no wonder your father was terrified. Yeah. That was that was Philadelphia, Mississippi, not a big place. Yeah, I can't remember what part of Mississippi we were we were in, um, but. Were you always with someone else when you were there? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't venture out on my on my own. The person you were with, well, didn't matter in this case because. Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney, two out of three were white. Um, yeah, it was, you know, I was, oh, after my second year at Vanderbilt, and, and I, I became real radical. I mean, I was, I came to Vanderbilt as a conservative Catholic girl, you know, uh, interested in science and very studious and <laughs> after after two years I was pretty you know pretty I was angry and pretty radical was it those those communist professors that radicalized you Eileen no it was my experience um, I remember when I moved from Mary Henderson over to the quadrangle and I remember hearing this one girl, she had a horse and she was talking about her horse and her horse cost more than my parents' house. And I couldn't wrap my head around that. You know, I was starting to, I was starting to see how society worked 
how, you know, whites could get ahead and try as hard as blacks did, you know, we just, we just seemed to be running in place, you know. Especially since your parents, your father had an advanced degree from Columbia, no less. That's right. an Ivy. Right, right. And my parents had a nice house. They had a three-bedroom brick split level, you know, on a quarter of acre, you know. But this horse, I forget how many thousands of dollars that horse cost, you know, and I, that's, I had no idea the gap. I had no idea how big the gap was, you know. So, uh, you know, I later spent some time trying to understand, you know, how that gap was made and, and why it was so large. But all of those things started coming together. Um, and a lot of things that I didn't understand, you know, like why we couldn't go there or why we couldn't. You know, my parents protected us. They didn't tell me I couldn't go because I was black. They would usually use the money excuse, like, oh, we don't, we don't, or the time. You know, we don't have time. We don't have, you know, and I, I just never really, you know, thought about it. I just took, took that as it was, but when I... When you say radicalized, um, you weren't throwing bombs. No, you, you I was... You weren't in the weather underground. You weren't bombing Roxy buildings. No, I was just angry. You know, I was just angry because of, you know, the, um, the you know, the, un the unfairness. You know, this is supposed to be America you know, you're supposed to be able to get ahead by, you know, your, your, your own, um, you know, the harder you work, the better you'll, you'll do. But I was beginning to see that, that that wasn't necessarily the case, you know, that, you know, my parents worked really hard and they, they did well and they provided for us, um, sent us to, you know, Catholic school, you know, where they thought we would get a better education. Um, but there were, but I was learning that there were so many other cards stacked against us, which which I didn't understand. I didn't really. How did radical look on Eileen as a junior in college? Um, like what that looked like. What did you start doing that you didn't do your sophomore year? Well, the the blacks got together. Um, especially my junior sophomore junior year and we started the Afri African American Association. It started with uh, when Perry and Godfrey, those were the first black basketball players, when they came the guys um, started organizing and then they brought the women in and we started um, you know having our own parties. We, you know, when I was first came, 15 people is not a lot to work with, <laughs> but, but when Perry and Godfrey came in the next two classes, that, that I think probably almost doubled our numbers or so. Um, and then the, 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 the guys kind of uh, led the way and, you know, we organized, we were able to uh, present our, our grievances and concerns to, uh, we met with Chancellor Hurd and the, I guess the, the board or whatever. And we're, you know, uh, because Perry and Godfrey were, you know, telling them, um, you know, how they were being treated, especially when they would go to out-of-town, uh, you know, basketball games. Um, 
and just um, you know we were just able to air our our grievances at, at that point you know they were called all kinds of n-words and you know it was, it was really it was really difficult for them but me as a female basically on campus you know we didn't you know the Vanderbilt student body was was well educated they came from very well-to-do families you know by and large and there was this southern politeness which which I you know it was a, it was a bit hypocritical um, but I preferred it to the <laughs> to the more truthful racism you know um, uh, did you ever fear for your life no I was now, I was young and dumb in Mississippi to double back um, how would you receive when you knock on the doors of these I mean, modest. Well, these we, are shotgun houses. These don't have indoor plumbing, and you're out in a rural area, and you're saying you should vote. You should come into town with me, and we'll register you. Um, and how was how were you received? Um, with with a lot of skepticism, and and where in the, those real like rural who are you, college girl? To like you don't. No, like you're not from here. You don't know what we face. Yeah, some of that, but they weren't. They weren't taking it out on us. You know? Right. They but, were just like, what? What's the use? Yeah, they were. They were basically, you know, I, I, I think saying to themselves, you know, you, you don't understand. You don't get it. Not only that, you don't live here, and you're going to be going back maybe at the end of the week or the end of the month, and then we've still got to deal with it. That, that was, that was my. So there sense might be an overt threat if people registered to vote yeah yeah now Johnny you you know you don't need to be doing all that right you, you right got it pretty good and, and sometimes I felt that that the that 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 the um, that the black people we were talking to were, were just kind almost kind you know humoring us you know they they understood what the reality was and they understood the dangers of them trying to vote they also understood that we probably didn't have a clue about what was really going on there, but they didn't want to. They didn't want to uh, just ignore, just throw us away. So they, you know, they were polite, and you know, maybe they said they would go and vote or take the papers or whatever. What they actually did, I'm not. I'm not really sure. I'm sure it was probably. Um, on an individual, those those individuals who were brave enough probably went down and registered or voted. Others probably didn't because they, uh, in fact, I remember uh, as we were driving around several times, um, you know, white, white men in like a big a, a truck that had a open back like something you would put hay in or something. And the, the guns that they had were in full view, you know. And I remember- Were they meant to menace you? I think so. But they didn't like cut you off and say. No, no, they didn't. I was I was lucky. Everybody else that went down after me, uh, I think got arrested. One of the things it did for me, it made me realize that most whites <clears throat> really don't have a clue what we go through or, or, to or this how day. we live. I, exactly. You know. And in fact I remembered telling some of my black friends you know, they were saying, oh, they, they know this. And I'm like, no, trust me. 
they do not think about us. You know, we are not on their minds 24-7. Whereas for, for, for black folks, white people are always on our mind because they, they control almost every aspect of our life. So we are conscious of white people 24-7 all of the time. Whites do not think about us in general unless we're burning something down or making a hell of a lot of noise, you know. So what you or experience... Or playing basketball. Well, yeah, but then that's a good recognition. That's, you know, that's a safe... Or unless you're Kendrick Lamar. <laughs> okay, right. Now, there is, there is that. Yeah, yeah. But I think the great myth, and just speaking as a white boomer um, who had a daddy who was a lawyer, um, who had his own law firm, um, so a privileged white boomer from the deep south behind the Magnolia Curtain. Um, to me, the great myth today is, well, we basically all have the same experience in high school. Hey, you went to such and such high, I went to such and such high, we were both Vikings or Panthers or Lions or ever <laughs> what the hell we were, and we, you know, we had the same classes, we played on the same football team, we served in the military together, so we had the same experience. So what is a specific, singular experience that if you could say, if someone could sort of step into your body, if they could embody your experience, that a white person might, like the light might go on if they had to live that experience? What's something? Well, uh, <clears throat> during the Civil Rights Movement, um, I, I heard a number of whites who, who had uh, been in the sit-ins um, and who had um, uh, done voter registration down south. Um, a number of them um, began to under, you know, began to understand. But it was, it was really just, you know, getting that uh, that experience. And uh, I think uh, when one thing I remember. I don't know if it was Stokely or somebody else in SNCC who said um, about the three uh, civil, white civil rights workers who were, who were murdered. He said one of the problems was that they did not believe that, 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 that they would be murdered. You know, they, they um, you know, they, I, they were from up north and they really did not understand the situation that they were getting into although you know the the, the, the black SNCC workers you know tried to explain it to them but you know it was it's almost beyond their comprehension you know and in fact I remember hearing them talk in SNCC that at some at one point they 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 almost didn't want you know the white students to come down because they they were they were so naive and a lot more trusting and but they but you know the black folks knew that in Mississippi you know they could get killed just as easily as a black person could get killed but 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 the white students especially from the north 
you know, didn't have that appreciation. They didn't have an appreciation for the real danger that they were actually in. Well, did you? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> were you afraid? No, I wasn't. I wasn't afraid. I was. Did you go out at night? No. Where did you stay? Who did you live with? Um. We stayed with other SNCC workers who were, were living there. Uh, I remember the first place we stopped, it was an integrated couple. Um, I think she was white and he was black. We stayed with them, you know, for a few days. And then we went on up to, I think, either Alabama or Georgia and, you know, stayed with, some, you know, somebody else. And they had kind of like a, 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 you know, underground railroad kind of kind How'd of you travel down there? We went by car. And so, would there be blacks and whites in the same car? Um, there, there, there would have been, you know, could have been. Uh, when I went down, uh, it was it was just blacks. So I think it was just two or three two or three guys and me. So if you stop for gas, you're going to go in, get a soda, gas up the car, and then go to the bathroom. That's perfectly normal. I'll do it at a Bucky's now. Uh, um, what would that be like when you went from Alabama or, or Tennessee into Mississippi? I don't remember. I don't think we made too many stops because um, that, you know, that would be a time that you would be in some danger. So I don't remember, you know, making a lot of stops. Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all-around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life, and sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn, so I always keep Pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol, use as directed and keep out of reach of children. The first time I saw Stokely Carmichael, he uh, was over at Fisk, and a, f a friend of mine, one of my black friends who was in school at American University. We'd gone to uh, grade school together. Uh, she called me up and she said, uh, you want to go over to F Fisk with me to hear Co Stokely Carmichael speak? At the time, I, I don't think I'd heard of Stokely Carmichael. I hadn't heard of him. And, um, oh, I, I, I had just heard of him because that's when he was going to come to Vanderbilt to speak, yeah. And he was speaking at Fisk first. So my girlfriend called me up. Um, she was in town, and she said, why don't you come with me, and we'll go over and hear Stokely Carmichael. So we went over to Fisk, and I, I, was, I was just kind of blown away. I mean, he, I mean, he just told it like it was. You know, it wasn't a Martin Luther King. At the time, I thought Mark, Dr. King was too conservative, you know. But Stokely was saying everything that I was thinking, you know, and feeling. Like? Um, you know, he just, he just, he just was real. Um, um, he talked about, uh, just talked about a lot of things about, you know, the, 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 the differences in money, the hypocrisy, the, you know, he just, you know, his usual black power speech. 
And this wasn't burn, baby, burn, or was it? No, it wasn't burn, baby, burn. And it, it wasn't was, kill whitey. No, it was it was wake up, you black folks, and you know smell the coffee, look around, pay attention to what's happening, learn things. You know it. You know it was. You know uh, you're being you're being taken advantage of. You know you're not allowed. You're not allowed to fully participate in the American dream for you as the American nightmare. And it, it just was a wake up. It was a wake up call for me because, you know, I was experiencing things at Vanderbilt that were surprising to me. I was starting to realize that the world was not how I thought it was and that the civil rights bill hadn't really done much at all. I mean, I thought after they passed the Civil Rights Bill, racism was over, everything was over, and you know, we'd all go march down the street singing Kumbaya or something, you know. I was totally, totally naive, you know. And, um, but Stokely was just, uh, I mean, he just told a hard, cold truth. He wasn't, um, most of our black leaders at the time kind of impressed me as just not being strong enough, you know. I mean, they were, they were from a different era, and they had to, I think, they had to uh, walk a little more softly. What about Malcolm X? Oh, well, Malcolm X, I put him in the same category as Stokely. Um, I, liked, I liked Malcolm X. I liked what he said. I mean, this was the first time that I really saw black men stand up and say, you know, you're being mistreated. You're being screwed. You're being taken advantage of. Stand, stand up, you know, and, and fight back, you know. So that, at that time, you know, I mean, I was, you know, what, early, you know, 20, 19, 20, 20, somewhere in there, you know, full of energy, um, you know, wanting to move ahead, thinking that I was, you know, especially with the Vanderbilt background, I was going to be able to enjoy, you know, the fruits of my labor and, you know, and then all of a sudden having to come to reckon with the fact that ain't none of that going to happen. How do you channel rage into something productive and how do you not just be filled with despair, depression, and rage? How do you not have rage consume you and really sort of cripple you? I get very, very angry. The George Floyd case really tore me up, you know. Um, but you know, you you have to you have to, first of all in your mind you have to know that you have to let the rage go, you know. Why? Because it it will destroy you, you know. Um, and it could make you do things that you never thought that you would do. If you let the rage consume you, then you will pick up a gun and go out and start shooting people. So, you know, you, you, have, to, you have to process that in, in your mind first. You, you cannot go down that hole. As much as, 
as much as you would like to. Um, you just know that you can't go down that, ho that hole. You can't let the rage overcome you to such an extent that you will do the same thing that the people you're angry with did. And, and, and you will do that if, if, if you let the rage um, take over your mind and your heart. You know, it's a hard thing to do. There have been, um, I still get, I, I'm trying to remember what grade I was in. Uh, I think I was about seven years old when Emmett Till was killed. I remember riding home uh, with my parents and they, we'd gone to dinner at my aunt's, you know, and it was late and I think they assumed we were asleep, but I was still awake. And I heard them talking about the Emmett Till case and what had happened. So the next morning I got up early and I went and looked at the Jet magazine and I saw the picture of Emmett Till. I, I can still see it today just, just as clear. And I can't tell you what a frightening, shocking experience that was. You know, I, I will never recover from that. Um, but, you know, over the years you realize that you can't, you can't lose yourself, you know, over all of the horrors because, because then, again, you run the risk of, of becoming just what you, you know, just what you hate, you know. Um, it's a hard thing to do. I, I have to um, practice it every day, you know, especially in these times when there are so many um, just unnecessary, just, just murders for no reason. Just the last one I heard about, somebody went, I mean, shooting children. I mean, I mean, how can you even wrap your mind around somebody who, 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 who would do that, you know? Um, One thing I was wondering is whether your Baha'i faith has helped with any of this. Do you process it through some yeah. sort of... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, the, well, we believe. <laughs> The teachings of the Baha'i Faith are designed for, for this day and time. The, the purpose of the Baha'i Faith is, is the unification of mankind, you know. Um, and so the teachings are, are very specific to, you know, to the time. So that, that helps a lot. It's not disconnected from what happens in the news. Right, right, right. Your niece said that you didn't come back to campus for well over a decade, and you didn't want her to come here. Um, yeah. Why'd you come back? Um, it took me 20 years before I could come back to Vanderbilt. That's, that's how difficult the experience was for me. And the only reason I came back was to get rid of the ghosts. I mean, I knew that I, I couldn't live my life unless I confronted, you know, the ghosts that I left here. And so that's why I came back. And to my surprise, 
Uh, of course, things that, a lot of things had changed in 20 years. Um, and um, I came back, I told my husband he had to come with me um, because I didn't know if anybody would even talk to me, you know. I was coming back then to just come to terms with my experience at Vanderbilt, you know, so that it wouldn't hang, you know, I'd get rid of that dark cloud hanging over me. Um, and I had a really good time. You know, my, my classmates were nice, friendly. I, they, re, you know, I, oh, Carolyn and Mars came back also. I called them up. I said, I'm going to do this, but you guys got to come back too. So I'm not the only one. So it was the three of us. One of, one of our classmates, black classmates, Henry Robinson, net, will never come back. He never came back. Um, and no I talked way. to him not too long oh, ago, good. and no way. But we had, we had a because good time. Just, just the trauma, everything he went through, it was a lot more difficult for the guys. Uh, but he just had such a, such a bad uh, experience. I'll tell you, uh, he, um, he, was, he was failing one of, the, one of the math classes. I can't remember which one it was. But it was one, he was a, I think he was a math major. Um, and he had to pass, the, he, he went to his professor because he had to pass it to graduate. And he asked his professor, you know, what could, what could he do, you know, so that he could graduate. And his professor told him if he got 100 on the test, you know, he would give him, he would give him a, either D or C in the course, you know. I don't know for how many weeks Henry lived with his math book, you know. I mean, every time you saw him, he didn't do anything but study, study, study. He got 100 on the test. He got the hell out of here and has not been back, you know. Um, I, I'll tell you one of my experiences. Um, um, one of my good friends, uh, who's, who's a white male, um, Doug Bates, uh, we met in French class. And I actually, I, I went in French class. I, sometimes I would deliberately sit beside somebody because I knew they were going to get up and move because I, I just maybe di I didn't want, you know, a lot of people around me. So I go over and, and I sat next to him and he didn't, he didn't move. <laughs> I was like, well, that's interesting. And not only didn't he move, but he turned around and he said, Hi, I'm Doug Bates. What, what's your name? And, you know, I was completely floored, you know. Um, anyway, I would, every now and then I would, you know, pass him on campus. And, you know, he would say, Mademoiselle Carpenter, you know. I was so, so paranoid that I actually thought he was making fun of me, you know. I wasn't sure how, but I just thought he was making fun of me. And several months later, bam, it finally dawned on me, he's in your French class, dummy. <laughs> he's just trying to be, you know, friendly. But, but, but that was the level of my paranoia, you know. Um, but anyway, I sort of went sideways. So, so Henry, you know, is never coming back. But I needed to come to terms with Vanderbilt, you know, for myself. Um, so I came back. Carolyn Morris, my husband, and um, I had a really good time. The years that had passed had really just smoothed out a lot of things. 
you know, my classmates were friendly. We had, we, we had a nice time. And I was finally able to, you know, to let it go, you know. Um, I didn't want my niece to come here because I thought that she might have the same kind of experience that I had, you know. And, um, but my niece is her own person and she's, she's much more outgoing than I, than I was. I mean, she, I mean, she'll just go up to people and just, you know, talk to them or whatever. And uh, it was a different era. And yeah, and this is, you know, 30 a whole different years generation. Later. Yeah, yeah. If we got struck by lightning today and the only thing that survived was this little piece of digital audio, what is your legacy? <laughs> um, well, I'd like to think that um, I'm, I, I've made a difference <clears throat> in some people's lives, um, that I was instrumental here at Vanderbilt helping uh, underclassmen, you know, get through the experience I knew that they were going to have and give them the benefit of, you know, my experience and thoughts on it. Um, I've, I've traveled to uh, Africa a number of times and I've sponsored several uh, young men from Africa, uh, gotten them citizenship over here and got them set up with, with jobs. So, you know, I feel proud, you know, about that. Um, uh, you know, uh, in, law, uh, in law school, uh, after I graduated, um, well, I passed the bar the first time. I had figured out, you know, the secret of passing the bar. And I tutored a number of black students over the years, almost all of whom passed the bar on their, their first try. Um, but, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to be known as, you know, um, I passed through this place once, but hopefully I helped a lot of people along the way. Who knows you better than anyone? Um, yeah, my family, my husband. What would um, they say about you? Hmm. <laughs> I think they would they would say I was I was tough. Um, that you know I I drove them. Um, but I was also a lot of fun, you know. I loved to have parties. Um, I remember uh, my sister told me that my mother, before she died, told her, you know, that we should take care of each other. And um, hopefully I've, you know, fulfilled that, you know, helping my my two sisters and my brother. Um, but I, I just, I would like to be known, there, there's a saying, and I don't know if I can quote it, you know, I shall pass through this world just once. L let, me, let me do some good along the way. I forget, it, I think it's a biblical passage, but that, that kind of says how I would like to be remembered is, you know, I, I help, I help, I put a hand out and helped others bring, you know, help to bring others along. Thank you, Eileen Carpenter. Thank you for making time. To Thank you. Thank you for taking interest in my, you know, 
story and and uh, talking to me about it. This is this has also been very cathartic, you know, to kind of relive some of the some of the memories and and uh, but it's it's just so nice that somebody is interested in it, you know. So yeah, wow. thank you. Thank you, Eileen Carpenter. I consider it a privilege and a pleasure to have met you and for your really open-heartedness in sharing uh, a lot more that we edited out about her Baha'i faith and about her faith informs how she views civil rights in this day and age. Thank you, Eileen. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Katherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who supported Man Listening, however you have from the very beginning, and also the In Her Words podcast which you can find at manlistening.com. Thank you so much. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.